Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You have great taste in podcasts. This is Deeply Human, and I am your host, Dessa. Our topic of the day is menopause. And before you run off thinking, I'm too young for this one, or I'm too dude for this, I can almost guarantee that you will be both surprised and entertained. Maybe even rendered a kinder son or daughter. Menopause is actually a really rare condition in the animal world. The only mammals who go through it are us and some species of whales. Okay, sidebar for a quick story. Many years ago, when I was 23, my doctor found a tumor in my right ovary, and in a blur of a few weeks, a surgery was scheduled, the ovary was taken out, and I moved into my dad's basement to recuperate. My doctor said I'd still be fertile. My left ovary would essentially pull double shifts for the next couple of decades— ovulating every month and releasing enough hormones to keep my system balanced. But there was a slight lag in my hormone production before my left ovary realized it was the only one left at the party, and I got a sneak peek of premenopause. I remember lying awake one night with a never-before-experienced sort of insomnia, not the familiar toss-and-turn routine, but a razor-sharp alertness and this feverish heat. The nighttime sounds gave way to the first morning traffic, then the footfalls of my family walking on the floor above me, and I registered all of it in this unrelenting, high-definition consciousness. And eventually I decided, I guess it's time to get up and put some clothes on. And when I rose, I saw the outline of my body on the bed sheets. My sweat had traced the edges of me in salt, like police chalk on cotton. Most mammals remain fertile all the way to the end of their lives, And intuitively, that would seem like a strategic advantage in the whole get-your-genes-out-there board game of evolution. So why is menopause only a thing for whales and women? And on the human side of that equation, why do we have such trouble talking to one another about the experience? Okay, first, let's review basics. Paging Dr. Rosalind Jackson, an obstetrician-gynecologist in Ohio. The average age for women going through menopause is 51, plus or minus three years. But 10 years prior to that is called the perimenopausal time of a woman's life. And during that time, hormones start to decrease. But it's when you become truly menopausal, it's not to say that you've totally stopped making hormones at all, but it's a very, very small amount that you're producing. Quick and painless biochem refresher. The major sex hormones are estrogen, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. 
And all three hormones are found in both men and women, but in different concentrations. Yes, ladies have testosterone and guys have estrogen. During menopause, levels of these hormones drop, and that change in body chemistry can affect women in all sorts of ways. For some, menopause isn't really that big a deal. For others, it meaningfully alters what it feels like to be alive in their own bodies, with effects on mood and memory, their thinking, and even their sense of self. A lot of times they don't associate some of the symptoms that they're having with menopause or that the fact that their hormones are decreasing, such as um, fatigue or insomnia. That's a really big one. But commonly, a lot of people do not associate the inability to sleep with the fact that they're losing their hormones or their hormones are decreasing. So there's fatigue, there's I can't sleep, I can't lose weight. That's a big one. Hot flashes and night sweats seems common, but it's not the main thing that women come to see me for regarding their hormones. Also, a decrease in libido, the integrity of their skin, if they're losing hair. You have to pull back all the layers to help a woman understand what's really going on with her body. You know, it's, it's very deep. How long does this part of a woman's life last, you know, from the moment that she starts to experience symptoms? Like, how much of her life are we talking about? Now you are menopausal. You have no hormones. And so... It's not like, oh, for 10 years, I'm going to be bothered with this, and then I'm done with it, right? So yeah, it may be true that you're not always bothered with hot flashes or night sweats, but what about the chemistry that's going on in your body? What about the fact that your metabolism's different? You can't lose the weight that you could when you were in your 20s or 30s. So those kinds of metabolic changes are ongoing because menopause is not just a phase that you go through is like this time in your life. It's like the woman you become. Our cultural attitudes toward menopause, along with the words we use for it, have changed a lot over time. Climacteric, the crisis, time of life, change of life, the change, and the gateway to death. My name's Louise Foxcroft, and I'm a historian and writer. I work mainly in the history of medicine, and I've written a book called Hot Flushes, Cold Science, A History of the Modern Menopause. Louise has sifted through all sorts of historical documents, diaries, old recipes, medical treatises, ads, to get a picture of how our thinking on menopause has evolved. Earlier records, say early modern records, say the 1500 to 1750, and I'm talking, you know, British at this point, it's mainly management, but it's tinged with this idea of what women are. And what women are is perceived through the male eye. And one of the ideas, that, say during the early modern time, is that when you stop bleeding, so when you hit menopause and you stop bleeding, the blood has nowhere to go. So it stays in the body and it corrupts the body. Because as we know, the history of menstrual blood is that, you know, it withers babies in the cradle and mirrors cloud and storms gather and, you know, flowers die, milk curdles, all that sort of stuff. Monsters come out of dung heaps where your rags are thrown. OK, that warrants a restatement. People used to think that women on their periods could curdle milk and wilt flowers. Pliny the Elder said that menstrual blood would take the edge off steel Luis says that our understanding of women's health is filtered through a medical tradition that regards femaleness itself as a sort of affliction. Just a heads up, the next few minutes include some adult conversation that might not be appropriate for little listeners. 
we are sort of um, physically unpleasant and emotionally unstable and prone to vanity and all sorts of indulgences. And what happens to our bodies is predicated upon those ideas of how we are and the way that we behave. And so generally you find you are treated in response to those ideas. Can you list some of the most dramatic treatments that have been administered to menopausal women? Yeah, so in the 19th century, when it really kicks off, you might have acetate of lead pumped into the vagina. You might have a vaginal plug. What is that? Well, that's, I mean, uh, rags and moss and various things have been used to, um, instead of tampons, they're sort of early tampons. You might have an anal injection of opium, some sort of narcotic, uh, which would just knock you for six, you know. So, but narcotic is a sort of everyday analgesic for us for everything. Am I correct in thinking that in our most regrettable eras, there were also surgical interventions? Yes, there were. There was uh, clitoridectomy, which is excision of the clitoris. Do you think that women are less afraid of menopause than they used to be? If you've placed your self-worth in terms of how you look and how you're perceived by men, mainly by men, then I think women might dread menopause as they might dread old age or the effects of ageing. If you're not worried about that, then I think you're happier. I think the more women know about menopause, the less they'll dread it. Mari Stopes, the feminist and eugenicist who founded the first birth control clinic in Britain in the 1920s, said there was also a gender power dynamic at play. That the menopause or the crisis of menopause is a manufactured crisis and it's been created by male doctors. At least as early as the 1930s, pharmaceutical labs were making hormone replacement therapies pills and creams that delivered sex hormones back into a woman's body in order to reduce menopausal symptoms. Some of the manufacturers of these products had absolutely no qualms about taking the lowest of all available low roads. The good one is Endocrem or Endocream, which was advertised in medical journals, but also in women's magazines. And that's the most glamorous photograph of a blonde and she's staring up at her sort of Clark Gable-esque husband and he's looking down at her... And she's obviously applied the endocrine, rubbed it well in, because you can't see it. But the tagline is, how long is it since he said, I love you? The thing is, ladies, don't get older and don't have a menopause because men will no longer love you. In the U.S., the number one prescription in the 80s and 90s was a hormone pill called Premarin. Since then, there's been a lot of controversy about hormone replacement therapy. Some studies have associated it with increased rates of cancer and other serious health risks. Okay, let's leave the chemistry and horrifying marketing copy behind for a moment and head instead for open water. It's time to talk whales. I'm Darren Croft. I work at the University of Exeter and I'm a professor in animal behavior. Your specialty technically is behavioral ecology. Yes, it's the study of behavior in an ecological setting, so understanding um, how the environment has shaped the behavior of animals. Does that essentially mean that you're also studying the way that animals interact with each other and with their larger environment yes. as opposed to an individual? Yes, definitely.
As a high school student, I spent most of my time wandering around in streams and fields and just studying animals. And fast forward around 20 years or something to hanging around in boats and, and looking at killer whales. Trying to understand how the world works. In the mammalian world, it's pretty much just us and a handful of toothed whale species that go through menopause, including orcas, a.k.a. killer whales, and narwhals, arguably the A-listers of the whale world. Darren and his student Emma Foster studied more than 40 years of all the birth and death records for two groups of killer whales off the western coast of North America. Emma had a suspicion that there might be some patterns in these birth and death records that could explain whale menopause, so she and Darren dove into the data. Ugh, I swear on my honor, that was an accidental dive pun, and it will not happen again. One important point about these animals, and it's absolutely key to understanding why menopause has evolved in this system, is that in most animals, one of the sex will disperse from, from the family group. And in this species, sons and daughters stay with their mother, and that's absolutely crucial to understanding why menopause has evolved. Okay, so whales are special and weird because the kids stay with Ma even after they're grown up. Not a crystal clear connection with menopause yet, but I'm tracking. But that means that you've got adult sons hanging around with their mothers. So we were able to look at what the effect of a mother death was on her son's survival, and we found a huge effect. The data showed that if an adult male's mom died, his chance of dying shot up too. His hazard of mortality increases by more than eight times. Wow. So they really are keeping their sons alive. So how exactly are older moms keeping their adult sons alive? One of the ways they're doing it is by feeding them, amazingly. <laughs> so you've got these 60-plus-year-old females catching salmon and actually sharing that fish, you know, ripping that fish in half and directly feeding these fully grown, huge male offspring. These adult male killer whales sound like the least dateable people. <laughs> well, they only go on very short dates because then they return back to their mothers. They, they literally are swimming by their mum's side most of their life. While dude whales typically die in their 30s, lady whales stop having calves in their 30s or 40s, but live for decades longer. They spend this post-reproductive stage of their lives helping their grown children and their grandchildren. And because old females have been around the water block so many times, they're particularly formidable when it comes to the hunt. One of the things that we know is that they are really important in finding the food in the first place. I mean, if you think about these whales swimming around in this ocean and these salmon are locally abundant, they're coming to the rivers in their masses to spawn. But not all rivers have fish at the same time. So it's a case of knowing when and where to look for food. And it's these old post-reproductive females that are guiding their family group around to find the fish. So it's that knowledge that they've accumulated through their life is one of the ways that they're helping to keep their family group alive. So here's the crucial bit. For whales, a grandmother's energy is better spent on existing offspring than on mating to make more offspring. Her genes have the best chance of carrying on into the future if she devotes her attention, her knowledge, and her resources to her adult descendants and their young brood, rather than getting pregnant again herself. 
a lot of anthropologists and evolutionary scientists are trying to find out if human behavior can be explained in the same way. If menopause is an evolved adaptation that directs our time and attention to our adult kids and their families. In a fit of literalism, scientists call this the grandmother hypothesis. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. If grand offspring really benefit in killer whale populations and potentially in human populations um, from having their grandmother around, even when she's post-fertile, then why don't we see it in a lot of other species that live together in social groups? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a really good question because we know that there are these grandmother effects in other species. So elephant societies, for example, the grandmothers are really important in keeping their grand offspring alive and their offspring alive. And similar mechanisms, you know, they know how to respond to predators or they know where to find water. With elephants, an old female can help out as grandmother while still having new babies of her own. But for whales, their social structure and ecological conditions mean that younger and older generations would be competing for resources. The key thing is with these resident killer whales is that when the females are reaching, um, that they've got their adult offspring around, there is a real opportunity there for them to help. Whereas, you know, it'd be hard to imagine a way that an elephant or another long-lived social mammal might be able to do that in the same way. Um, because of diet, because they're because, herbivores, because, because the I can't ecology. catch a tree, yeah, right? The tree's the just there. The tree's there. They're grazing, they're browsing. And, you know, if we look at other long-lived mammals, such as elephants, for example, they're not sharing food in the, in the same way that the killer whales are. And indeed, ancestral humans were sharing and helping to prepare food. So it really is the ecology, the environment, the diet, the life. It's, it's all a combination of factors. And it is very unusual that you get these effects coming together, which is why menopause is so rare in the animal kingdom. Okay, a quick aside before moving on. Fertility functions in different ways in humans and whales. For women, menopause is signaled by the cessation of a woman's menstrual cycle. But whales don't have periods. And so researchers can only tell if they're post-fertile by measuring the hormonal levels in their poo which they locate floating on the surface of the water with sniffer dogs, the most famous one of which is a Labrador retriever named Tucker. Listener, the world is wide. Louise Foxcroft, our menopause historian, says it's important that all of us, boys and girls, know more about this stuff. More about our own bodies, not about Tucker the Labrador. In schools where they have sex education, they need to talk about menopause then to 13, 14-year-olds. They need to know about the whole of their reproductive lives. Wow, that has not occurred to me until this moment, but I wish that in my like um, junior high and high school sex ed, mm-hmm. which was so profoundly uncomfortable for so many reasons, mm-hmm. right? It's a mm-hmm. weird class. I wish they had talked about the menopause, not necessarily because I would have been in a position that it's going to better equip me for my own menopause, but yeah. because I would have loved a, like, a very... <laughs> 
swift jab to the ribs to like think about my mother in a more compassionate way. And in researching this podcast, I texted her like, I am so sorry (laughs) that I was totally tone deaf to like a really big part of your life when you have not been, even when we fought, like you've not been tone deaf and completely oblivious, right? To like these big things that are happening in mine. Well, I lost my mother when I was 35. Mm. So I never got to have that conversation with her. And I would have really liked to have that conversation. I remember her having the menopause and I remember her struggling with it. And I just didn't really, you know, I had no conception of what was going on. And we didn't talk about it because I think that generation of women, mm, she was born in 1930, Mm. didn't discuss it. With that note on the importance of intergenerational conversation... I'll usher in our final guest. My name is Bob Wander. And how did we meet? Uh, I am the father of the interviewer, Dessa. (laughs) Actually, we met in the hospital during your birthing process. I remember the day very clearly. Reading scientists' arguments for and against the grandmother hypothesis made me think about my own grandma. When I was very small, she took care of me a few nights a week. When I got big, we ate lunch together at a dumb sports bar Why I drank coffee, and she ordered a Manhattan and always picked up the tab, which, incidentally, is pretty much exactly what the grandmother hypothesis would predict, both the childcare and the resource sharing. I still sometimes wear Jeanette's wedding ring on a chain around my neck. She and I were close, but she and my dad were really close. Do you feel like you understood her? I do. Did you feel understood by her? Uh, probably better by her than just about anybody else on earth, to be honest. Do you know what her experience of menopause was like? That's a good question. I really don't know. I was too young to know much biology when she was menopausal, and I was also kind of on my way out of the household at a relatively young age to be on my own. Okay, I'm going to do a quick fact check with you, Dad. Are you saying that when you went off to college, you didn't know the biology of menopause? I knew a little bit about it, but uh, the only female in the household where I grew up was my mother. I had four brothers. So I knew (laughs) very little about what was going down, to be perfectly honest. My dad and his mom shared secrets. They confided in one another about their marriages, the sweet stuff, and the lousy and lonely stuff, too. So it struck me as a little strange that what might have been a really important experience for her was never really mentioned between them, even in passing. Years later, When my ovary had to come out, my dad got really involved with the science of the female reproductive system. Like, in order to understand my experience, he wanted to understand the biology of me. I remember your diagnosis and treatment very well. These subjects for public discussion were really kind of taboo when I was a very young uh, person, at least in Central North America. And they're not now. So I think the level of knowledge that everybody has about the number of as I said, gender identity issues and female biological issues, the level of general education is much higher now than it was when I was a very young person. Uh, Do you think that is better? (laughs) I do, yeah. I think sunlight is the best disinfectant. I I didn't invent that phrase, but if I had invented it, I would be proud of it. (laughs) Jeanette was a pretty stellar mother. Loving, but also shrewd and quick. If she were a killer whale, she would have been the ferocious hunter to stuff all her sons with fish. And if menopause is partly to thank for the way that human children are raised, then it's a huge factor that shaped a lot of our families in a mostly unrecognized way. 
On my next visit with my dad, I've already made plans to have a salmon dinner in Jeanette's honor. Salmon and maybe a Manhattan, too. On the next Deeply Human, why do you listen to sad music? Like, if we're generally trying to lead happy lives, how come we subject ourselves to songs that choke us up? The song can feel like you're communing with an artist who understands and has been through what you've gone through. And so it's not necessarily hopeless because here's somebody who clearly went through some of the same things that I did and came out on the other side and wrote a song about it. Deeply Human is a co-production of the BBC World Service and American Public Media with iHeartMedia. And it's hosted by me, Dessa. Till next time, stay curious.